Good morning. How's everybody doing? It's Romans Day. We're going to be in Romans. That's it. Actually, today we're going to finish Romans. What do you know? April Fool's. Your grandkids are going to be still studying Romans. No, we're moving fast. We're halfway through. We're halfway through. Today we finished chapter 8. It's 16 chapters. Halfway through today, and we started in September. That's pretty cool, right? That's pretty cool. Today we have a great uh, passage that ties in to what we celebrate today as a church. What do we celebrate? Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Jesus came into Jerusalem as a conquering king, and today we're talking about what it means for us to be more than conquerors because he conquered for us. So, if you could summarize the first eight chapters of Romans so far, how would you do it? This is it. We're closing out the first eight chapters. Next week, we start Romans 9. Everybody's super excited about that. Some of you are super excited about it because you're like, yeah, I, am, I know what I believe, and I'm excited about this. And some of you are like, yeah, uh, maybe we can just skip 9 to 11 because it's pretty intense and scary. What have the first eight <clears throat> sorry, what have the first eight chapters been so far? What have they been about? We're all sinners. Okay, so that's where we start. We start with sin. Why do we start with sin? What are we going for? It's just the gospel, right? It's just the good news. That's what we want. That's what we're about. So we start with sin. Why do we need good news? Because there's bad news. There's wrath. Okay, so we've got the wrath of God. So we have the good news of being reconciled to God the Father, of how God sent Jesus so we could move from being his enemies under his wrath to his sons, from slaves to free, from death to life. But it starts with that broken relationship, like Chris said. It starts with sin. Our first father, Adam, messed it all up. He broke his relationship with God the Father and all of us are then born in Adam. No relationship with God whatsoever. It's called original sin. We were lost. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were enemies of God. All of mankind has daddy issues. So what stood between us and God? Our sin stood between us and God. The curse of our sins stood between us and God. Death stood between us and God. The world stood between us and God. The devil stood between us and God. There was an insurmountable chasm between us and God and all kinds of things in between. What did God do? God sent Jesus to become man, to become a second Adam, to pay the penalty of our sins so that we could be redeemed. He exchanged his perfect life for our sin so that he gets the wrath and condemnation of God and we get the reconciliation. He was broken so we could be restored. So that relationship with God could be made whole again through Jesus. We could be redeemed, reconciled, and restored to God the Father through God the Son. So here's the question we come to this morning. We've worked through all of that. We spent chapters talking about, and weeks, talking about sin and wrath. And then talking about what it means to be justified, to be counted righteous by faith, reconciled to God, redeemed, and restored. 
And the question this morning is, okay, that relationship's been broken before. Can it be broken again? It was whole once, and then it was, there was a split. And our sin and everything came between us and God. Can that, can that happen again? Can that happen to us again? Sin and death, the devil and the world, they were once between us and God. Can they be there again? Some of you have had relationships in your life that were supposed to be strong, that should have been invincible. And you've been disappointed And those relationships, maybe they were with your parents, with a spouse, maybe even with a child. And those those relationships have been broken. Something came between the two of you. Abandonment, betrayal, rejection. Maybe it wasn't even something like sin. Maybe it was just the effects of sin, death. Anybody's lost a parent? Sibling, somebody close to them, they died. Can that kind of thing happen between you and God now if you've been adopted into God's family? That's the question. Is this a setup for another disappointment, another failure, a worse disappointment? We've touched on adoption a little bit over the last couple of weeks, right? Because we've been talking about how God has adopted us into His family, Adopted children have all been through traumatic circumstances that they never, ever should have had to go through. That leaves them wounded and hurt, jaded. And if you've ever adopted or if you've known somebody who has adopted or fostered children, you know that there's this sort of Hollywood narrative that's like, oh, yay, you found your forever home and now everything's happy. And it never works that way. It couldn't be farther from the truth. Why? Because that pain, that betrayal, that abandonment follows you. And it resurfaces and it resurfaces and it resurfaces over and over and over again in the lives of those kids. They have to deal with it. Even Ben and Megan's kids, Megan carried them in the womb. They'll still have to deal with that. They'll still have to face that. Some of you have experienced this to a lesser degree just in blended families. And I say to a lesser degree, and I mean to a lesser degree, but that doesn't make it small. Right? Foster parents, adoptive parents, step-parents, all have to go out of their way to show love and tenderness and affection and build trust that they, hadn't, they never broke. They weren't even there for it. It was broken before they ever showed up. They have to provide safety and security and strength and steadiness in the midst of the chaos of children who have been hurt and don't know what it is to be a part of a functional, happy home, a loving home. And it's often that way in the household of God, where wayward children are adopted, brought in, which is what we all are in one sense or another. We're the adopted children of God. It's where we all start. So when God adopts us into His family, we bring the baggage of our broken relationships, the baggage of our own sin, and the baggage of this sense that really we're outsiders in the family of God. And maybe we don't really belong. 
maybe we don't fit. We bring pre-existing tension to the relationship. Tension that exists in us because of our fears, because of our doubt, because of our pain, because of our sin and rebellion. Tension that does not exist in God. But it does bring us back to that question. At the end of eight chapters about what it means to be redeemed by Christ and reconciled to the Father and restored to the household of God, can it all be undone? Can it be undone? Can we mess this up? Can somebody or something else mess this up for us? Is there anything that can come between us and God once he has adopted us into his family? Can our sins come back and haunt us? Are we sure that there's really now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Are we sure? What about the suffering that we're supposed to endure? What if we fail those tests? What if we come up short? What if people come after us and persecute us and we fail? Is there anything at all, anything? We need to know. We need to know up front. We don't want to be set up for failure. Is there anything that can make God change his mind? Is there anything that can make him turn his back on us or give up on us or disown us? Paul asks these questions this morning, and he answers them. Three big questions, and we're going to take them one at a time. The first is, who can be against us? Who can oppose us? The second is, who can condemn us? And the third is, can anything stand between us and the love of God? First question, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So here's what he's saying. It does not matter who is against you if God is for you. Y'all remember the story of David and the Philistine Goliath? How does it go? The Philistines have the armies of God pinned down right? And Goliath the giant, the Philistine champion, charges any Israelite who has the guts to come out onto the field and engage him in open combat. And David's just a shepherd boy visiting his brothers in the trenches. And David accepts the challenge. And he's too small to fit into any armor, so he goes out into the field with nothing but a sling and five smooth stones. And what do they say? Who's this dog who comes out to fight us, to fight me with sticks and stones? And David says what? He says, you come at me with sword and shield and spear, and I come at you in the name of the living God. David slings his stone. He knocks Goliath out. He walks up to Goliath, takes Goliath's own sword, and lops his head off. And the armies of God rout the Philistine army that day. When God's on your side, who can stand against you? Answer, nobody. Well, that's great. How do I know if God's on my side? Some of you find it very difficult to believe that God is for you. You'll believe that he's for everybody but you. And then you'll be bitter with him that he's against you. But who told you that he's against you? Who told you that? Where did that come from? Do you see that in Scripture? 
It does not come from God. It's actually, in fact, a tension that God does not tolerate. It's a tension that Paul in Romans does not allow. It is not a tension. There are many tensions in the Christian life. There are many tensions that God requires us to negotiate as we live by faith in a world that's opposed to Him. But tension about His love for His saints, His children, is not one of them. He eliminates that. That's the one tension you're not allowed to have. And that's the one tension that if you get rid of, you're then free to embrace all of the tension of life. We rest secure in the love of God, and that frees us to deal with all of the tensions of life. And we want to turn and make the tension about our relationship with God. Why? Because we don't want to deal with this other tension over here. We don't want to fight the fights. We want to stay in the trenches and doubt the love of God. Why did he sing Goliath out into the field? Why is there a giant out there? Why are the Philistine army surrounding us? God must hate us. And God says, no, no. No, that's not the issue. The issue is not my love for you. That's not it. That's tension we bring, but it doesn't exist in God. All of Romans 1 to 8, up until now, has been saying this one thing. If you're in Christ, God is for you. He is for you. While you were still his enemies, he was for you. While you were dead, God was for you. While you were a slave of sin, God was for you. While you were lost, God was for you. If you belong to Jesus, you have to get out of here with the idea that God is not on your side. You have to be done with it. It has to die. If God is for us, and he is, that's how Paul talks. If God's for us, who can be against? He just assumes it. He doesn't want you to even ask the question. If you're in Christ, of course God's for you. What's he been saying this whole time? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. That's what he says. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not with him also graciously give us all things? If God gave his son, his one and only begotten son, to be crucified on the cross for our sins, to secure our reconciliation and our restoration, what in heaven and on earth and in hell would he not give? What could stand between us and him? He's already given us everything. The most precious thing in all of the existence has already been given. The proof is there. What more proof do you need? What more could he give? What more could he do? What could he have done that was greater than what he's already done? For you to be adopted into God's family, God the Father had to send God the Son to the cross. And he did. Your life was bought with the blood of God's own Son. Do you think that God would allow his Son to walk through all of that for nothing? He's already given everything there is to give to save you from sin. He's already done it. What's left to give? And if that's true, how, how dare any of us be afraid that he's somehow against us? That's, 
But it's no other name for that than pride. If you're in Jesus, it's over. God is for you. He's always been for you. He always will be for you. The deal is done. Jesus paid the price, and that means the price has been paid in full. If you're in Jesus, that's forever. God is for you now and forever. No one can be against you. Some of you are caught up in an imaginary battle with God that, about whether or not He could love someone like you. And it's an imaginary battle. You're in this internal conflict about whether or not He could actually be for somebody like you. Stop it. Your sin is not unique. You're not that special. You're not that special. Your sin is not more powerful, more potent than anybody else. Certainly not more powerful and potent than the blood of Jesus Christ. There's a real fight to be had. And that fight is not with God over His love for you. That's a distraction. That's a lie. The world is full of tension. The world is at war with God. And if we're not careful, we will be intent on bringing tension into the one place God doesn't want it. Pride, self-pity. Romans 8 says, God is for you. The cross is all the proof that you need. God is for you. Go fight the fight. Go fight the giants. You'll be tempted to sit in the trenches wringing your hand about whether or not God is for you. Not even be in the fight, living like slaves, living like dead men. Jesus came and lived and died to show you the love of God and to break your chains so you can turn and fight. So don't sit on the sidelines. If you do, you'll be tempted to judge those who are out in the fight, just like David's brothers were tempted to judge David. Oh, man, he's so proud and arrogant and so hopeful. He exposes my pride, my fear, my doubt, my uncertainty, and he's going to get the glory that I kind of think I deserve because he has the guts to go out there like an idiot and fight Goliath. No, he just had the guts to take God at his word. And God honors that. God honors that. It's not presumptuous to take God at his word. It's presumptuous not to. God is redeeming this world in Christ so that he can give it back to his children. He's out there building an inheritance for his children and calling you into the fight, into the battle. All things really are yours in Christ. And it may be that you have to walk a hard road in this life. Some people die in battle. Some of the Israelites died in battle that day. But it's a short life, and God has an inheritance waiting for you in glory. A resurrected body, a new heavens, a new earth, and new things wonder, too wonderful for us to imagine. That promise is secure at the cross. It's proven at the empty tomb, which we'll celebrate next week. And you've already started receiving the benefit of it. You've been forgiven, justified. You are being sanctified, changed, healed, helped. You will be glorified and perfected. 
He's given you His Holy Spirit as a deposit, a promise of greater things to come. Whatever your family was like growing up, in Christ, God has given you mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers, a family, a community of people who love you and want to see you thrive and grow, who are there for you, called the church. But if you want proof that He's all in on you, I mean, you can look around. You can look at your life. But you don't have to look at any of those things. Just look at the cross where Jesus bled for it all. Nobody loves you like that. Nobody could love you more than that. I love you guys. I can't love you like that. I love my kids. I can't love them like that. All of that kind of love is a dim, pale reflection of the love of the Father for you if you are in Christ. Question one. Question two. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Okay, so if you're in Christ, if you're among God's elect, His chosen ones, who can judge you? Who can condemn you? Remember the sermon from a couple weeks ago about guilt and condemnation and the condemnation we all feel? If God has justified you and declared you to be righteous, who can condemn you? Jesus died Jesus was raised from the grave. Jesus ascended into heaven. Jesus sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He still has the holes in his hands and in his feet as he sits there at the right hand of God, the Father. And those holes in his hands and feet prove that he died for his people. And so anybody that comes into the court of heaven to accuse you before God the judge has to contend with Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father with the holes in his hands and in his feet and in his side. They have to deal with him. Jesus Christ, dead, buried, resurrected, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us saying, this one is bought and paid for. I wrote his name in the book of life in my own blood. You cannot touch him. You have nothing over her. There's only one person that can condemn you, and that is Jesus himself. And guess what he's not going to do? He's not going to do that. It's not going to happen. If God declares you righteous in his sight, you are righteous. Well, how does that happen? God says earlier in the book of Romans that we believe God. We have faith. We trust in Jesus. We trust in his work on the cross. God credits that faith to us as righteousness, as a gift. The blood of Jesus washes away our sins, and God clothes us, covers us up in the perfect righteousness of Jesus himself, so that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. But you must believe it. 
and lay hold of that by faith. And if you do, if that's you, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Zero. There may be discipline, there may be pain, there may be suffering, but there's no punishment. Jesus was already punished for your sins. He bore the penalty. The punishment he endured was enough, sufficient. You can't bear a drop, not an ounce of what you actually deserve. Not a bit. And it's arrogant to think that you can or that you should. Every sin, every accusation, every failure, every weakness, every shortcoming, every misstep, every misdeed, every unkind word that you've ever spoken, every wrong desire of your heart was taken and nailed to a cross. And Jesus bore that, all of it, in his own body for you if you belong to him. He bore it so you don't have to. You don't bear it anymore. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is interceding for us. How many of you have been in a relationship ruled by guilt and shame? Ruled by condemnation? Where you felt like you had to constantly appease the wrath of mom or dad or a husband or a wife? It's brutal, unsustainable. This is the way that some of you are tempted to parent. You vacillate between brute force and emotional manipulation centered on guilt and shame. Usually, dad plays the role of Mr. Brute Force and mom plays the role of emotional guilt and shame, manipulation. And it can be reversed in some households and we all play both parts. But it works, that way, uh, it works out that way for all sorts of reasons. One of those reasons is that in general, dad can back up his threats with brute force and at a certain point, that 15-year-old boy, the most you can do is talk to him if you're a mom. The problem is brute force and emotional manipulation are control tactics. They're not parenting tactics. They're weak. They're selfish. They are unloving and they don't have the best interests of the kids at heart. The aim is control, not maturity. It has to do about you getting what you want. And if that's your MO when it comes to your kids, you've got a timetable and the clock's gonna run out before your kids are beyond your control. And I don't care what your mom and dad were like. I don't care what your ex was like. I don't care. Because when you get down to the bottom of all of it, you parent that way because you deep down believe that God is that way. And God is not that way. He's not. 
God does not operate by brute force or by manipulation. That's not how he cares for us. Well, Jake, you said last week when God calls us, he calls us and he changes us and it's as much out of our control as when Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb or when a dad pulls a toddler out of a swimming pool. Yeah. Just like when you adopt a child, the kid you adopt had no choice in the matter. Ben and Megan's kids, did they have a choice? They were locked in a freezer. Ben and Megan elected them, chose them. They're Ben and Megan's elect. They were locked in a freezer. Ben and Megan rescued them from a sci-fi dystopian prison. And they're here this morning. That's how you save a child. That's how you adopt a child. But it is not how you raise a child. There is a difference. What would be monstrous is if Ben and Megan treated them like a piece of property that they had a right to lock in the freezer. What would be monstrous is if Ben and Megan made them work to prove that they deserve to be in the family. To prove that they belong. To prove that they're good enough to earn acceptance in the Sulcer house. What would be monstrous is if those kids grew up under the threat, they could be dropped any day if they screwed it up. Or be made to feel like they actually belong back in the freezer. God's not that way. God is not like that with his children. If you're adopted into his family, you're his child, period. He is for you. There is no one to condemn you if you're in Christ. No one. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Nobody. God's already decided. He said it. It's done. In your life, you're going to have people who condemn you. You're going to face demonic accusation. You're going to be tempted to condemn yourself. People are going to want to beat you, and you're going to want to beat yourself up for the condemnation that Jesus already bore for you. Condemnation breaks relationships. We were condemned. We had no relationship with God. Where there is sin, there can only be relationship where there's grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. If condemnation is how you parent, your kids will feel alone. If condemnation defines your marriage, your husband or wife will feel alone. And here's the way that condemnation works, the way that guilt and shame manipulation work. They're fear-based control tactics. That's it. And apart from the grace of God, they almost inevitably create the things they're afraid of. If we allow fear to drive us to try to control our kids through guilt and shame, we'll create the things we're afraid of. When they fail, they'll reinforce the narrative in our own minds that we're afraid of. And we'll treat them that way. We'll act like we always knew it. And eventually little Johnny will give up trying to please a parent that cannot be pleased. And he'll say, I guess I'm just the bad boy that mom always thought I was. And since there's no value in trying to please her or dad, I quit. I'll just be what they say I am. God's not that way with us. God's not that way with you. 
When we fail, God does not condemn us. Jesus is interceding for us. And here's what the Bible says about Jesus. Jesus has never stopped, never stopped loving you and working for you. If you are in Christ, from eternity past, he set his love on you. He planned to save you. He became a man for you. And some of you are like, yeah, but not me only. Yeah, but also for you, for you. He taught and he ministered and preached for you. He went to the cross for you. He rose from the grave for you. He ascended into heaven for you. He sits right now at this very moment at the right hand of God the Father interceding for you. He is for you. He loves you. He will never, ever let you go. Never. His love is not like your love. He's not fickle. He does not play games. He is who he is. When he says yes, he means yes. When he says no, he means no. His word is unbreakable. His promises are written in stone. They're true. He will bend heaven and earth to fulfill every last one of them. You have a God in heaven who is 100% on your side. Nothing in heaven above, nothing on earth below, nothing in hell can stand between you and him, period. When God decides to save, God saves. What God decides to do, God does. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. If it pleases him to save, he saves. He is all-powerful, he is all-knowing, he is everywhere, he is unstoppable. And that means if you belong to Jesus, you belong to him. If you're in Christ by faith, it's over. You win. Not because of anything you've done, not because you're special, but because he loves you. Because he's just that good. And the Bible says that Jesus is interceding for you. So that when you sin and you fail and you have burdens and you groan, remember last week, and the Holy Spirit brings it all to Jesus, Jesus is there as our great high priest and he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He can say, yeah, I know what that's like. I've been there. I've been tempted in every way, just like these people, just like you. I know what it's like to not know where my next meal's coming from. I know what it's like to be lonely, to be rejected, to be despised, to face death, to face suffering and pain. And I forgive the sin, and I forgive the doubt, and I forgive the weakness, and I forgive the failure, and I have help for you, because I am for you. Bring those burdens to me. I know what they are. I've carried them before. It's nothing to me. This is my job. This is what I want. I chose this for you. I chose this when I chose you. I knew. 
I knew your sins. I knew your weaknesses. I knew your failures. I knew it all. I chose to bear them. Bring them to me. Bring them to me. Give them to me and lay them down. Trade them in for grace. I have grace, storehouses of grace, infinite grace for you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, only grace. Because God is your Father. Because Jesus, the great high priest, the God-man, who has been where you've been and walked where you've walked, sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. And because the Holy Spirit lives in you and carries your groans to the throne room of God so that you can rest assured of this. You are perfectly known. You are perfectly understood. You are perfectly loved by the only perfect triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From the moment you believed and were united with God through Christ, you have been known and loved and understood, and you always will be. If you belong to Jesus, you will never be abandoned. You will never be forsaken. Because those who God calls, God keeps. Who shall separate us from the love, question three, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What's going to separate us from the love of God? Tribulation? This is another way to say trouble, right? Problems, pressures, pain, things that cause anxiety. When tribulation comes, will God still love you? Answer, yes. Life is hard. God is good. How about distress, stressful circumstances, or persecution? Have you ever been attacked for your faith, for being a Christian? If you haven't recently, try walking onto a college campus. It'll be real easy. Pop onto social media. Flip on the news. A trans kid pops off and shoots up a Christian school and kills a pastor's kid. And we're concerned about violence against trans youth. You don't think that's persecution? You don't think that narrative is meant to attack those who love God? Famine, no food, the threat of economic collapse, nakedness, the utter inability to take care of basic needs, shameful vulnerability, danger, threat of harm, trying to attack you physically, emotionally, financially, sword, literal war, to come in to put you in the gulags. Any of these things come between you and the love of God? No. No, it's almost silly to say, right? So why are they listed here? Because these things often feel like they're going to come between us and God. They often feel like God doesn't love us. It's often how we're tempted to interpret them when they come. If he's not protecting us from tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword, is that because he doesn't love us? No. No, this is the normal Christian life. Life is hard. And many times and in many places, Christians have been, currently are, will be regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
The world's at war with God. The world hates God. Therefore, the world hates God's people. Jesus says, if they hated me, they'll hate you. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. But don't ever, ever for a second let them convince you that those things happen because God doesn't love you. And don't believe that those things can take you away from God's love. What Paul's actually saying here is, look, the love of God is so completely, so utterly, so totally invincible that the worst that can happen to you, the very worst thing that can happen to you, is you suffer a little bit of tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. And what's that compared to the love of God? What's that compared to the love of God? The most they can do is kill you, strip you naked, take away your things. Big deal. You have the love of God the Father. You're free from the weight of sin, from guilt and condemnation. Well, they can, they can mess with you for a couple years, but eternity is yours. An inheritance is yours. These circumstances are just circumstances. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed. That's what he said. They're just circumstances. They can be hard to bear, and they are. They can be difficult, and they are. In the middle of them, they can be used by Satan to tempt us to harden our hearts to God to think that God doesn't love us. But they don't change the heart of God towards his children. Not for a second. If anything, if it were possible, they increase his love and compassion for us and his anger towards our enemies. But they don't diminish his love for us. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No. Nothing can separate. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Conquerors isn't a strong enough word. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm certain, I'm sure, I'm convinced that nothing not one thing, not a single thing can separate us from the love of God. They can take away everything, but they cannot take away the love of God from those who are in Christ. There is nothing more certain than that. In all of the world, there is nothing more certain than that. There is nothing more secure than that. This is why when I serve the Lord's Supper... What I say over and over again is that God's grace is more real, more tangible, more concrete than the bread that you're going to take a bite out of and the wine that you're going to drink. It's more certain than gravity, than the sunrise. I'm more likely to jump off of this platform and go floating through the air than for something to come between you and the love of God. The oceans are more likely to rise up and cover the mountains the mountains are more likely to throw themselves into the sea. The moon's more likely to come crashing down to earth. All the laws of nature are more likely to be reversed. The floor under your feet is more likely to give way. The love of God is that sure and secure for those who are in Christ. One day the sun will stop rising. The world will be changed and transformed, but the love of God for his children will 
continue for eternity. It cannot and will not ever be taken from those who are in Christ. Never. No one can take it. No one can stop it. Nothing can stand in the way. No angel of heaven, no demon from hell, nothing in between. You have to understand this because this is what frees you. It's what frees you. It frees you to stop caring what people think. It frees you to stop worrying about whether or not people like you. It frees you to stop fretting about your finances and the economy and the future of America and Klaus Schwab and the end times. I'm not saying that those things don't matter or that we have no responsibilities. David, though, still had to walk into battle and sling a stone, right? He didn't just get to sit in the trenches and say, I believe in the love of God for us. My God's bigger than that guy. Let's wait and see what God does. No, my God is bigger than that guy. meant David had to get out, grab a stone and a sling and go out into the field and face the giant. That's what it meant. Still had to walk out there and fight by faith, and so do we. While everyone mocked him and while everyone mocks us, Philistine and Israelite alike. From the one side, who's this idiot child with sticks and stones? Does he really think he stands a chance? It's hilarious. And from the other side, what kind of Joel Osteen-loving, plastic-smile conqueror who thinks he's a victorious Christian would dare walk out onto the field with Goliath like an idiot. I can't wait for Goliath to wipe that smile off his face. Victorious Christian, more than a conqueror. Yeah, right. No. It's faith. We have fights, each one of us. We have to engage in those fights by faith, and we can because God is on our side. By faith, we can fight those fights and we can do it without worry or fear or anxiety because God loves us and fights for us. And the most that can happen is we suffer and die and then get to go be with Jesus. And that'll be okay. Be more than okay. We have and have to have absolute certainty of the love of God towards us in Jesus. Not because of anything we've done, but because of Jesus, because of who he is and because of what he's done. The shield and sword we take into battle is the cross, the proof of the love of God. Do we have tri tribulation, suffering, persecution to face? We have the cross. We have the love of God. Do we have death or life or angels or demons or things present or things to come or anything else trying to stand in our way? We have the love of God. You can't make God love you any more. You can't make God love you any less. If you're in Christ, he loves you with all the love of the Father for the Son. And he's in charge. And he knows how this story ends. And so we don't have to be afraid. He's told us how it ends. Guess what? He wins. He wins. His enemies are defeated. He conquers the world. We get the inheritance. And between now and then, we don't know what that's going to look like. And it doesn't matter. We know it's going to work out. 
We know the one who knows how it's going to work out. We know how it ends. Jesus wins. And he's for us. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want you to come as more than a conqueror. I want you to come as somebody who's been bought by the blood of Jesus. You can come weak, you can come trembling, you can come fearful, but remind yourself that the bread and the wine are shadows. And Christ is the substance, more real than the bread and the wine, and He is for you if you belong to Him. But that if is a big if. You must belong to Him. That, must mean, that means you must be a believer. You must actually have turned from your sins and put your faith in Christ. All of these things only apply to you if that is true. If not, you're still under the wrath of God. But that's why Jesus came. So turn from your sins and turn to Christ. This table belongs to those who belong to Jesus, who are walking with him by faith. I mean, it's for a baptized believer who loves Jesus, who's walking with him, who's part of a Bible-believing church, and who's not living in some sin against their conscience, okay, actually walking with Jesus. Now, if that's not you this morning and you want to be, you need to be baptized, come talk to us. We'd love to baptize you. You need a church family, we want to be your family. You have some sin that you're struggling with or that you've not been struggling with that you know you've just been in rebellion against God, we want to pray with you. We want to talk with you. We want to help you. Now listen to what Scripture says about the supper. These are the words of institution. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the love that you have for us in Christ. I pray that every heart here who knows you would be assured of that love. And those who don't would be assured of the promise of that love for those who repent. Help us to come to this table by faith. Help us to move from here, to leave here strengthened and encouraged by the love that you have for us in Christ so that we may fight the fights that you have for us to fight. In Jesus' name, amen.